0: So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free. And ask yourself, what will you create today?
1: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 14 years now, Debbie Melman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Suki Novogratz about meditation and recovery from trauma. How did you forget?
2: But that's what you do to survive. And you are a bit hollow because you're not really anchored in your body because you've had to be disconnected to it. Here's Debbie Millman.
0: All right. You and I know that we should do it. You know, it would bring more energy, more focus, more peace of mind. But yeah, you're busy, I'm busy, we've got a million projects to do, careers to build, and we just don't have the time. Suki Novogratz has some advice for us. Just sit. That's actually the title of a new book she co-wrote with her sister-in-law, Elizabeth Novogratz. The subtitle is A Meditation Guidebook for People Who Know They Should But Don't. That would be me, dear listener, and probably you too. Meditation is great in theory, but in practice, we fall flat on our faces, or we fall asleep. Well, I, for one, am here to learn, and Suki Novogratz is here to talk about meditation. But she is also here to talk about the life-changing trauma that first motivated her to meditate and subsequently initiate important advocacy work she is doing with the Joyful Heart Foundation. Suki Novogratz, welcome to Design Matters.
2: Hi, Debbie. Thank you for having me.
0: My pleasure. Suki, you've said you're known as Swami Mommy in your inner circle. So I'm wondering how did that come about? What's the story behind that?
2: I was always trying to find alternative ways to sort of help heal my kids. Not originally. I mean, I was definitely the classic, you know, give me the doctor, give me the best doctor. And life sort of changed when my daughter, we moved back from Asia, we're living in New York, and my daughter had high blood pressure. She was five at the time. Wow. And the endocrinologist was like, well, let's change your diet for the year and then we'll check it again. I thought, like, Whole Foods, like, what was I doing wrong? Okay, I'll take the salt out of the mozzarella. But like, honestly, I thought I was doing a great job diet-wise. A year passed. We go back and the endocrinologist is like, nothing has changed. So she's going to have to go on a pill for the rest of her life. Oh, I don't really like that. And so I went to my one woo-woo friend that I knew from the music school and she said, I should see this doctor epilepsy at the Continuing Health and Healing Center. I went there. um, I did Full disclosure. Go to other doctors who also were like, "Well, looks like she's going to have to take a pill." So I went to Dr. Pawleski, and the first thing I noticed is when I got there, he said hi to me very kindly, and then went with my daughter Gabby to do puzzles while they had a discussion for a half hour. Oh, that's a first! And then he came back to me for three minutes and said, "Well, we're going to first try chiropractic work, and then maybe we'll do some homeopathic work, and maybe some of this and." We'll see what sort of works and doesn't work, and maybe at the end of the day she might have to take a pill. But let's try these things. Now, mind you, Doctor Pulaski was a regular doctor. What was at Harvard? Totally credited. And another full disclosure: my father, who was always a big you know, into chiropractic and all this other stuff, I always thought like he was like crazy. Like go <laughs> see a real doctor, right? So like I couldn't even share with my dad who was around at the time to say like I'm going to take Gabby to see the chiropractor. like I was sort of like embarrassed. We went. And this wonderful woman comes in with this beautiful glow. She was at the same facility and and uh, and she starts looking at Gabby and like doing some body work on her. And she's like, oh, do you know your daughter has an extra rib? And I'm like, no, I didn't know that. Not crazy. I have an extra rib. And my father used to always joke is because I didn't want to give it to Adam. So that's not so crazy she has one, an extra one. And she's like, well, you know, she's so compact. And so it's putting sort of – I believe it's putting pressure on her pancreas. And so that's probably setting off her adrenals and maybe her high blood pressure. So let's just release this rib and wait 20 minutes and check her blood pressure. And sure enough, she was normal. Wow. And that was sort of the single deciding moment for me of just sort of like, oh, wait. There's stuff here that's really valuable because at one point – would I stop my daughter's medication like at nineteen and say like, "Oh, let's let's go off that those meds and see if like you're let's okay now"? With your blood that would never pressure. happen. So like right. for the rest of her life, and then and that all that development, what's doing that to her liver? All this stuff, who knows? And so that was sort of a, a life changing moment and made me be a seeker with all things. And so all the moms would be like, call me you know Swami Mommy or whatever Suki Mom or whatever it was to sort of you know where um, does Suki come from? Suki is a nickname that's not my given name. And, uh, do you my, share what your given name uh, is? Dora. Um, which was my mother's name. Really? That was mm-hmm. my grandmother, great-grandmother's
0: name, and I was named for her. Oh, Dora. really? Yeah, Deborah and Dora. Oh. I just don't go by Deborah; I go by Debbie.
2: Look at that. Look yeah. at that. But so how did you
0: share. get Suki? I mean, I could see you get Debbie from Deborah, but how did you get Suki you from know, Dora?
2: You know, no, I mean, it's sort of like a mixed story, you know, because I've always been called Suki. Like, in Hispanic culture, your apodo, your nickname, is like an act of love. And so it's like your real name as opposed to your, you know, given name. So everyone calls you that. And there's a mix. You know, my parents were trying to adopt at the time because my sister's ten years um older than me and my mom had problems um conceiving and they had a Korean baby but that sort of fell through because in the you know late sixties to Hispanic adopting an Asian child was a bit challenging. And I came and I was a really fat baby. I was like ten pounds, believe it or not. And azucar is sugar, and so suki-suki, and then the Asian influence. It's probably a confluence of, like, how I got suki. Um, That's wonderful. So, yeah. Well, you grew up in a household that was incredibly
0: tight-knit. You've written that your parents, who were both social workers, spoke only Spanish at home, and your father mainly cooked food from his native Puerto Rico. You've likened your childhood to living in two worlds, a Spanish one and an English one. How did you navigate between those two worlds?
2: It's a, all that I ever knew. So, so it's a code switching that sort of – you know, and it was easy to pass, right, since I, I, I typically don't have markers that sort of say, oh, you're Hispanic. So I could sort of slip into the other world and not have to identify and I could pass, um, which made things sort of a little easier. But it made you conscious and aware of where power lies. You know, like when my parents would sort of call the doctors, if I picked up the phone and called the doctors – you know, without the accent, I got a stronger response than my father and my mom. My awareness grew from that place. You've also written about how you'd get physically
0: sick before things like sleepovers. But your dad taught you a magic trick to cope when he was dropping you off for your first one at age seven. Can you tell us about that
2: magic trick? He loved this magic trick. He taught me it um, once before, too, but it sent you his breath work. And I thought I'd have a superpower when he taught me that like imagining sort of this sort of yellow ball in your center of your body and that you breathe in deeply and then you breathe out sort of this yellow energy in the front of your body and then imagine the yellow ball and the energy encompassing the back of your body, and so it creates this sort of you know protective layer, which was really just a way for me to sort of get my breath back so I'm not like all hyper and nervous of you know going to someone's sleepover, which is usually a girlfriend that I wanted to spend time with anyway, uh, but I had experienced anxiety.
0: Your father started meditating when he was working on his social work mm-hmm. and his psychology PhD. Uh, and when you'd come home from school, you'd sometimes find him in a headstand against the wall or loudly practicing his breathing work which made you not want to bring your friends over after school. You were not a fan. And at what age did you begin to accept it and begin to think that he was onto something?
2: I think everyone sort of is embarrassed by their parents. It doesn't matter how interesting... I mean, like, like, looking back, like, wow, I had really interesting parents. I just, you know, they were mine. So that's like... Yeah, you know. I was really
0: embarrassed by my mother's galoshes. I remember them being really heinous and feeling like, please don't get out of the car, please. And they were please. probably
2: fabulous, yeah, right? now. Now. I, yeah, gorgeous. Someone asked me once, how did your father teach you to meditate? You know, and I was thinking back to like, sort of, well, when was that? Did he actually sit down with me? And, and no, it was like these magic tricks, like another... The first time he, he sort of taught me, I would come home crying because I went to a Quaker school, this small little Quaker school in Frankfurt, uh, Philadelphia, and they always played kickball. And I never really knew how to play kickball or any of that. I was not really sporty. And so I would sit on the stoop and read a book. And there was this kid, Joey, who eventually would like throw the ball at me. To hurt home. you? Yeah. Or like, you know, and, and I would always sit there. I just didn't understand like what was going on. Like I was just... Reading this book, like why, you know, why bother me? And so I came home, um, and my father, that's when he taught me first the trick of this, you know, magic yellow, yellow ball. And so the next day I was like, Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. And for whatever reason, miracles would have you, the ball hit the side of the stoop and never hit me again. And so I was just like, Oh, I've got a superpower. Oh my god, this <laughs> is amazing. And so I started meditating. I didn't realize he right. sort of had duped me into it. But anytime I felt a sense of insecurity, you know, it was a way to sort of this protective layer, you know. And now looking back, you know, I realized that the ball throwing was never about me anyway. You know, Joey was a slow reader. Here I was, like perched up there reading, you know. So I I just was up there, he probably just like represented all his rate, whatever, you know, That's that was a wasn't very about
0: generous, me. a very generous perspective, Suki. I know that when you were a child, you asked your dad where he goes when he meditates, and he said, do you know that there are people who believe that our living world is actually a dream? When I meditate, I go to find out if this is true.
2: Mm.
0: And I love that. And I, I, I have never met your dad, but I can only imagine he must have instilled this incredible sense of wonder and opened up the world for you in this really wonderful and imaginative way.
2: It's very true. He could also be very frustrating as well. In like, what way? In that I'm coloring and I'm, and, and I'm like, oh, well, what color should I do the roof? And he's just like, be the master of your own decisions, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, it's just a color, like red or green. But the magic was there. You know, it was his curiosity. And I think in many ways, you know, I was his little like sidekick. And so I think it was also a place for him to sort of explain, understand what he was trying to understand himself. And if he could explain it to me, then that was a way for him to understand, like, okay, now I've got it. If I can get her to sort of connect on these ideas.
0: During the summer after you graduated high school, when you were only 17 years old, you had what you've referred to as a cosmic smackdown with the Undertaker. And you've said that Undertaker carried you up to the top of the tallest ladder so tall that when you get to the top and look down the wrestling ring looks like a postage stamp and hurled you towards the earth where you hit so hard that you became a cockroach. Suki, can you talk about what happened on that August night in 1985 after you went to see the movie Saint Elmo's Fire?
2: Well, I did what a lot of kids do while there. I mean, I wasn't at college It was during the summer, but it was during you were the, in the summer, summer session at Harvard. You yeah. were at Harvard. A summer session there, and um, and we went back and played quarters. And what uh, is quarters? Quarters is this like, I, you know? Honestly, I, I've sort of forgotten. So I don't think I've played since then. But like, you sort of throw the quarter and you get into the into the cup. And oh, okay. It, and if you don't get in the cup or get in the cup, you drink. I'm not too sure. Whatever the case was, I lost, and so I had to drink um, with just Tropicana vodka mixed drink. But then I quickly. Was not feeling great, and in and out of whatever, and I realized that there was something, you know, I was drugged. There was something that was not okay because even, you know, from drinking, even a couple of drinks, you, you don't have that kind of right. reaction. We used to was lose. it was it Rohypnol? Yes, um, the roofie drug, the roofie drug, the date rape drug, and they were moving my body, and I, I you know like from the dorm room, wherever we were, I and they say they it was there were three men, three boys, three boys. You know, also, seventeen, yeah, or even younger, sixteen. They could have been because I was—I'd already graduated from, from high school, anyway. And, and when you're that sort of that dead weight, you're—it's heavy carrying even a small girl. Um, and I remember them throwing me down the stairs um, and waking up to sort of like you know feeling sort of the weight of of like just my body just crumpled on the stairs and bringing me to another room where I was violated from every you know. Part every orifice.
0: Body. Every orifice of my every body. Every orifice by all three. Yes. And this went on for quite some time. It did. And then you woke up at, at one point during the experience, during this terror and horror.
2: Yeah. I mean, yes, I woke up. But I was also in and out of consciousness during the whole thing and that moment of just like when you're outside of your body and sort of watching it.
0: And the, the boys um, were worried that you might be able to identify them. Yes. and so then they did. They did more brutal things to you.
2: Well, they they thought, well, if she eats enough coke and we do enough alcohol, then maybe she'll have heart failure, and and then that will sort of like. You so th- know. were they
0: were they hoping that you would die?
2: It seems like that was sort of the plan, um, but that didn't work out. <laughs> so
0: they dumped your naked body uh, by a boathouse mm-hmm. on the Charles River. Um, you were discovered there. Yeah, and you were taken to the hospital,
2: but then you ended up waking up in a dorm room. The RA who had brought me there—someone had called him and said that Suki's by the boathouse, so he came. Apparently, because I wasn't conscious for this really, and got me to the hospital. And so he was the one who brought me there, and then they once they were able to resuscitate me and everything like that. Then they let him take me. Why didn't the they hospital? call the police? Why didn't they call my parents? You know, I mean, I I, I don't know. It's such an outrage. And then the second part of this horrible story,
0: which I hope you're okay talking about, yeah. was how you were treated. Yes. Um, the, you've, you've written how the second act of this drama plays out as unbearably as the first. You thought that the campus police that you ended up speaking to were actually police, and they weren't. Yeah. You had been cleaned and showered in the hospital, so there was... No evidence other no. than what you were saying.
2: I mean, because technically, if I had not like washed my hair, there was evidence there. But like I had still all my sticky things on me. The, from the EKG. But like everything else was wiped clean. I mean, it's
0: outrageous. That's, that's just unthinkable. Um, you ended up going before Harvard's Interim Summer Judiciary Committee. And that was, it was even more horrific. What happened during that experience?
2: I walked in and there were a bunch of women. So I thought – I was like, okay, my people, they'll understand my story. Like this is crazy what just happened to me. Like I don't – you know. And so I was sitting down. I was there with with my father. He came with me. And their first questions were, we hear you're Puerto Rican. We hear you are a sexy dancer, you know. And I'm like, are you – yes, I am Puerto Rican. I dance. Um, Sexy dancer. I don't, you know. they are a performer. I'm a performer. I quickly knew that this was not turning out the way I thought it was going to turn out. Or I was just sort of shocked that I was telling a story that they were like, yeah, this just sort of doesn't add up. And I'm like, I mean, I'm lacerated. I've got bruises. Like even if I had consented to like sex with three guys – at some point i would have said this was not okay like no one leaves out like this is a great time like um we end up in the hospital not knowing what's going on you're all naked and you you're dumped to, by the river dumped by the river like and so that's the cockroach moment of just like wait am i the only one that's like sees this um and then you know back then they didn't have all this protocol about having the perpetrators come in while you're in the same room you know and the and the, the girls who'd been they're playing quarters with us. They came in, and then they're like, well, she's no, she's at the theater. We don't know where she was that day or that evening. And to be fair, that's that was mostly true, but not that night. And then the three guys came in, and literally I, I just jumped out of my seat and, like, collapsed. And, like, all I could think to myself was, like, oh, this is what Freud means by hysteria. <laughs> like, I had no, you know— I. You know, and then, of course, you know, I wasn't there, but I could hear, you know, and they were like, oh, you know, we can't really have a conversation with her. It's if like there was something wrong with me, um, as opposed to I just was, went into absolute shock. And so those boys got off. They did. They did. Do you know whatever happened to them? No. I mean, once I heard their voice when I was in London by the Rosetta Stone, and he said my name, and I just ran. Wow. I just ran. And that was years later.
0: And they've never apologized. They've never tried no. to make amends. No. I knew that you were initially thinking about trying to get justice for yourself, but your parents didn't have a lot of money. These boys came from a lot of money. How did you come to accept that there would be nothing at that time that you could
2: do? When you're in that level of trauma, on the one hand, I couldn't even think of justice. I just thought this was just wrong. I I was sort of confused more so than anything else, you know, because I believe in justice. I believe that justice, you know, like, makes sense, (laughs) that will happen. Um, And so there's a part of me that just sort of put it in a box because I'm starting my freshman year next month. So you did it. You just – you ended up going and starting college
0: the next month. You went to Princeton the very next month. Yeah. You've said that your first friend – you made there, told you many years later that she got the feeling that you were made of paper mache And I actually thought about that a great deal this last week as I was preparing for the show and thinking, well, you might have appeared to be made of paper mache but man, you were internally steel. To be able to recover from that, to be able to continue to live and not have a psychological break and not end up psychotic is
2: remarkable. How did you recover? Well, I I did have a breakdown, you know, (laughs) in school, which happened when the first time I had sex and the smell of semen. And that sent me – because, you know, it's hard to believe, how did you forget? But that's what you do to survive. You just sort of like put it away and you focus on other stuff. And you are a bit hollow because you can't – you're not really anchored in your body because you've you've had to be disconnected to it. And so – when I've actually connected and all the smells, it triggered everything, you know, to the point where I had to call my dad, like, did this happen to me? That's how deeply I didn't want to go there. And then it all just, all the memories started coming back and all the, all the physical sensations. But you graduated. I did. I took a year off. I took a year off to sort of put myself back together, not fully, but to get through the next two years.
0: And how are you feeling now?
2: I feel great. I feel fabulous. You are such an
0: extraordinary force of nature. One of the reasons that I wanted to interview you on the show was to talk about how you have designed your life in this magnificent way of acknowledging the trauma later in life, something that you spent many, many, many years um, working on, and have emerged victorious in the most in the most wondrous way.
2: Mm, thank you
0: um, I know that meditation was a good part of your recovery, a great part of your recovery. I want to ask you a bit about how you came to discover the various ways that being in your body, being conscious of your breathing, of your thinking helped you in your recovery and in your journey to now?
2: Well, meditation has just been this amazing gift. And, you know, I, I didn't think it'd be what was going to help me get to the other side, so to speak. And, you know, people ask, well, what is it by meditating that got you to the healing part? And that's the mystery. You know, there's no like, well, if you do X, Y, and Z, you connect the dots, you get to Y. It's after the years of sitting and acknowledging everything that comes up without judgment that allows you to grow and to have different conversations. Like, I mean, Joyful Heart was an amazing influence in in this growth process as well. And in terms of helping me get into the other side, there was one gala where they wanted my kids to come on stage and say why they're involved with Joyful Heart. And so I was like, oh, was great, okay, the girls the girls can do it. And then um the executive director said, Well, you know, we really want Christian too. And he was only thirteen and I really hadn't told him the story yet. So I was like, okay, let's see if I can do this. And um it was at the time where the broadcaster um was in Egypt and she was assaulted um, in this mass. Anyway, she had gone on television to discuss what had happened to her. And it had just happened, and so I sat down with Christian. I said, "Can we? You know, I know you've probably heard a little bit about my story from your older sisters, but you've never actually heard it straight from me." And so we listened to this woman describe what happened to her as a segue to talk about my experience. And in that moment, talking to him, I, I was I, I spoke about these these three boys, and in that moment, I saw my son, and I was like. What if he had done this to someone? Would I stop loving him? Mm. You know, and I was like, I would be destroyed by his actions. But I—he's my son. I could never stop loving him. And so, in that moment, like stuff was coming out of my mouth that I was like, "Well, these these men, you know, these boys, you know, they could have made better choices." And I said, if, "If you're ever in that situation, you may very find find yourself in this situation. You can't just walk away. You have to." hear my story, hear that other woman's story, and do something to stop it. But then I went on to say that maybe today that they're probably fathers and with daughters, and they may be good humans. And I was like, where is this coming from? And I realized that, that I'd come to the other side, you know, that, that something was released there, that level of forgiveness, that had nothing to do with them, and all about me and my son in that moment. That's extraordinary. Um, for our listeners that might not be aware, um, like me, you're a
0: board member at the Joyful Heart Foundation, whose mission is to transform society's response to sexual assault, domestic violence, and child abuse to support survivors' healing and end this violence forever. And the experience that you were talking about, the foundation named you its Heart of Gold Award winner, and you gave an incredibly emotional and beautiful speech you know, it's interesting. You you talked about in that speech how you'd always been fond of singing, but at that point in your life you had stopped. And then years later, as you accepted the award, you sang, and you were joined on stage by uh, Ingrid Michaelson, and you performed. You got your voice back. I did. You've also served as an executive producer on the documentary The Hunting Ground, which took a deep look at rape on college campuses and was nominated for two Emmys, screened at the White House, and was an official Sundance selection. Um, now you're an executive producer on the new HBO documentary I Am Evidence, which documents women whose rape kits weren't tested. I think it's really safe to say that you are one of the orchestrators of this Me Too moment. Um Your advocacy work is really powerful, and you are an example of how you can actually transform trauma into power. Um, Are you planning on working in any more documentaries or?
2: I'm always open for that, absolutely.
0: You and your husband are very successful, um, and you've said that what you find so interesting about having success is how much you're able to give. And how much you can support causes that are dear to you. How do you personally choose what you would like to contribute to and to
2: fund? I wish I could say that my husband and I are like really thoughtful. We lay things out. We research. We're really sort of emotional, instinctual, and pretty spot on because of it. We do things we care about. We sort of find that things find us. And then it works that way um, in a beautiful way. What I find
0: so interesting about your success is that you both come from middle-class families. Therefore, you are completely self-made. Um, do you think that in some ways you see the world differently than people that are born into wealth?
2: That's hard to say. We're grateful. And I think a lot of times we're pinching ourselves um, as well. that it doesn't define us. You know, we have this big extended family and many don't have that kind of wealth. And they're just as exciting and interested and interesting And so it keeps everything very balanced.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the new book that you Mm -hmm. wrote with your sister-in-law, speaking of family, Elizabeth Novogratz. The book is called Just Sit, a meditation guidebook for people who know they should but don't. Mm -hmm. What made you decide to write this book? I wanted to say, what made you decide to write this book for me, but I didn't, (laughs) although I just did,
2: but in any case. Well, on the journey of all this, I mean, I'd be lying if I didn't admit that I thought – oh, I'll write this for Mike, for my husband. You know, he really needs this. (laughs) You know, when in fact, it's also for me too. I knew I liked him for a reason. Yeah. And in fact, you know, he he was the one who brought me to my first meditation retreat. And in fact, he's been quoted in the Wall Street Journal as sort of like being this big meditator, what have you. And my friends would be like, does that like upset you? You know, like your (laughs) husband's like, you know, Mr. Meditator, but like you're the meditator. And I'm like, you know, honestly, you know, if it gets people to the cushion to sit, I'm – applauding all the way. Now, you've written that
0: you developed your practice of mindfulness in a quest for better health and originally to lose 50 postpartum pounds, and that changed the way you and your family
2: live. So what are what are some of those changes? How did that impact your life? At the time, I didn't realize I was gaining all that weight because I had all kinds of endocrine problems, <laughs> what have you. Um, but um at the Continuing Health and Healing Center, there was this wonderful doctor that I was seeing. My mother was was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's, and um, and so she said, "Well, you know, you should live as if you do also have it." This before the twenty three mean, and you could you can get DNA testing then, but it was very expensive and, and very hard, like whatever in two thousand. But she told me something very interesting. She's like, "Look, you know, you're if you have a great diet, and you exercise all the time, that's fabulous. But if you don't sit." and detox your brain, you might as well just sit on the couch and, like, eat cheeseburgers because your mind can create so much toxicity. And that's sort of what sort of got me thinking about meditation. I'm not a meditator, nor have I ever been
0: a meditator. So how do you actually meditate?
2: I I like to tell people that if you breathe, you're halfway there. You know, the other part of it is paying attention to your breath. And so... When you start to sit, your mind's just going to go bonkers because that's what mind does. Mind is a thought production, and our number one addiction is to our thoughts. It's not about getting rid of those thoughts. It's about focusing and acknowledging them and noticing them. You can see them on the playground. Those are your thoughts. So that gives you that moment to sort of release yourself from the bondage, even if it's just for a moment. So what is the first step you would recommend for
0: anybody that is intrigued by what they're hearing, that thinks that they should be doing this for lots and lots of reasons, but are afraid or just apprehensive about what it would entail? How would you advise somebody to start?
2: For training wheels sake, I mean, guided meditations are really helpful because you're not alone. I mean, for me, that's how I started. I mean, Deepak, Deepak and I go way back and I listened to him religiously. And then one day I was, like, on my, I guess, my nano back then, and it just stopped working. And I had this moment of panic. I'm like, Deepak, you got my back. Where'd you go? You know, I need you. And then I just kept on breathing. And I'm like, oh, look, I can fly. I can do this. And so Guided is really great to start because that gives you the support and, uh, and it can make you feel very relaxed and get you ready for when you don't have a voice there, when you're just there alone with your breath. And sometimes that's the baby steps to get there.
0: So if, if somebody were approaching meditation for the very first time and sitting down and saying, okay, I'm going to give this a try. I know I've read your book, so I know I'm going to be sitting in my chair and yep. feet on the ground. Yep. What would be the next step for for somebody that was tentatively sticking their toe into the meditation pool and saying... I'm going to hope this
2: doesn't destroy me. <laughs> well, I do some deep belly breaths. And like how my father gave to me you know, the sense of security, it's really nice to start just with your two hands on your belly and taking four deep belly breaths because that instantly sort of puts the stops on your fight or flight. So sort to of bring you into your parasympathetic nervous system to have it calm down and then you're in your body.
0: And then just breathe.
2: And just breathe and follow your breath. And you may do it for like three seconds, and then you, you won't even realize that thoughts have come in, that you're like the 2 listen and what have you, and you're like, oh, okay, back to the breath. And, and how, does, how does this help? I know that um,
0: you advocate 20 minutes a day of meditation, but you also say that any amount of time is good too.
2: Can mindfulness really be achieved in, in these small doses? How does that happen? We like to say any amount of time because it does build up. And that if that's all you have, I mean, I remember in the beginning when I was really trying to focus on my practice, if my day got away from me, even if I just sat in posture before I went to bed, I just didn't want to break that link. And so you're like, okay, what does that do for you? Well, it shows my commitment to myself. And ultimately, if you can fulfill that commitment, you start getting little benefits. And then you're sort of like, whoa, I didn't beat myself up when the boss like, didn't like my email or whatever. And so you start leaning on it because it gives so much back. You did a lot of research
0: to be able to write this book. You studied with many renowned teachers, Sharon Salzberg, Krishna Das, Ram Das, Amma, the monks at the One World Academy in India. And I want to ask you if we can talk about some of the benefits that you outline in Just Sit – So you say that the big non-secret with meditation is that it can and usually does feel stupid, pointless, and counterproductive in the beginning. Check, check, check. Yep. Um, starting something new and unknown can suck. It can make you feel vulnerable or uncomfortable. It can bring up all sorts of insecurities you'd just rather not deal with, which is why as adults, when we try something new, we so often quit before we give it a real chance. And I talk about this all the time with my students, how you can't expect to be good at something you've never done before. But by the time you get to like middle age, you kind of feel embarrassed not being good at something. Um so so that was a really interesting thing like I have to just let go of the fact that I'm going to be good at this thing that I and I like to be good at anything I do. So it's this I'm sure of, you
2: are, Debbie. It's
0: really hard. It's really hard. So you say that you'll notice that the mind can be similar to an unruly little kid who doesn't want to eat his dinner. And I love the tone of your book. It's so relatable. It's so non-preachy. So how do you deal with what you call the moment of no?
2: I know it so well. It still happens, you know. Really? You still it? Yeah. Okay. It still. That gives me hope. Because it's human. It's our ego that takes over. You just have to show who's boss. It's like, no, I'm going to do my sitting. I'm going to go and observe thoughts and be cool with myself.
0: You say that meditation is a direct line to your voice
2: of reason. How does that work? Well, oftentimes, right, we're like in conflict, right? because someone disappointed us here, or you had to confront someone about that. And you can never make a great decision when you're in conflict. You just can't. And so for me, meditation, it brings me to that place so I can resolve that, so I can come more from a grounded perspective.
0: You also show in the book how studies show that brand-new meditators can grow more gray matter in their brain in as little as 20 minutes a day for eight weeks. That alone, for me, is the reason to start, to think that I can get a better brain. My brain Mm -hmm. could be sharper. Um, That you begin to see changes in memory, empathy, and stress levels. How does meditation do that?
2: You know, who knows? It's sort of magical. But the studies have shown that, like, your prefrontal cortex will grow, which is where, you know, that's how you organize everything. But then that's also correlated to your amygdala, which then sort of shrinks which is where all the stress and fear, fear, fear lives. So the two sort of like, as one grows, the other shrinks. You're like, that's fabulous. And how does that work? I have no idea.
0: Now, I don't know if I have the pronunciation of this um Nerve correctly, mm. um, the vagus, vagus, vagus. <laughs> <The Vegas. Vegas. laughs> <laughs> what the- sounds <laughs> dirty? I know. I Vegas. know. Tell
2: us about the vagus. This was to me like this blew my mind. I mean, it's very funny because Beth, who who you know, wrote the book with me, she's just like, oh my god, like go the vagus. I'm like, I was like stunned. It's like, wait, we've got this like nerve that literally is our, a way of stopping. You know, ourselves and create more peace in our lives. And like, we've never talked about this. Woo! Like, where'd this come from? So it's the longest nerve in the
0: body. Yeah. And and you write how it runs from the, from deep within the brain through the heart and into the gut. I, I mean, this is this is revelatory. So it's also been called the connector, the wanderer, the vagabond, or the compassion nerve. Yeah, I know. I learned all these things. It's incredible. It controls breathing, digestion, heart rate, as well as our reactions and responses, and can act as a brake pedal for the fight or flight. So, can you talk about ways that either meditation or or this type of mindfulness can stimulate the vagus? Yes, say it correctly.
2: Well, dancing, being in flow. I mean, there's this, like, little thing that my husband used to always do to, like, stay awake for a party, uh, which would be like a tea party. You put your face in cold water. And who knew that also stimulates the vagus. And being kind, like, you know, giving someone your umbrella, things like that will activate it. Um, And so, you know, your vagal nerve pretty much shows you how compassionate you are as a human. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) You know. You also say that
0: meditation teaches you to self-soothe. That is incredible. So so give me an example. So if, if something happens and you want to sort of work to um,
2: self-soothe, would you use some type of meditation practice or technique? I mean, getting back to your breath, I mean, I think I shared with this before, you know, a couple of weeks ago, my daughter got a uh, flat tire um, on the road and she she's texting me, Mom, Mom, you know, flat tire, you know, do we have triple A? You know, and I'm like, triple A? I mean, I hadn't had a, like, Flat since the nineties, you know. I mean, I know I probably still pay the bills, but I'm like <laughs> AAA. I don't know. And then I'm like, then I go to like beating myself up. I'm like, okay, when I went on the road, my father made me show that I could change a tire not once, not twice, but three times. Wow. I let my daughter go out in the world to drive, you know, without even the AAA number. Like, like what was I doing? So here I am beating myself up as she's like texting, like mom, mom, and then I I'm like, what am I doing? I'm not in any service to her or myself, I get back to my breath, you know, I was able to calm everything down. And I'm just like, you know, sometimes life happens. And I found the AAA and he came in 45 minutes, you know. And in that moment where I just like got hijacked by my thoughts and then even worse than beating myself up, you know, going back to like whatever when I first let her have the car, not helpful. And what she really wanted was, you know, some a safe voice that was calm because she was nervous and scared so I could be available and hold that space for her.
0: I wanted to ask you about the book's design. As I said, it's very plain spoken. You don't sugarcoat anything. It's not woo-woo at all, which is why I like it so much. It's very, very straightforward, a little bit intellectual, but also very playful. It's also really wonderfully illustrated. Talk about how you found your illustrator and how you went about the design of the book because it's so lovely.
2: Um, Nyej is... A miracle, honestly. We found her on Craigslist. What is her full name? Um, Niaj Borges. Okay. And she is from Brazil. We, we had lots of people send us their stuff and nothing really resonated for us. And then we saw her portfolio and we were like, she seems sort of cool. Um, and we just really bonded. And she, even though there was like a lot of translation going on but or not, somehow she was able to understand us. Because my directions or best directions were not always so direct. We'd be like, well, we'd be like a fox that was sort of like the mean girl in middle school, you know, and, and she had to capture that. Somehow she got it and yeah. she understood us. That's one of the things I like so much about the book. The illustrations
0: are extremely um, emotionally present, if, it, if that makes any mm-hmm. sense. There's the gestures in her lines are very evocative and, and really bring you into the book in a wonderful way. Yeah, yeah. Um, What's next? Are you going to have meditation classes? Are you going to start your own way of teaching people? I think that there's something so much bigger and and powerful out there that you can do with this type of work.
2: Well, you know, for for Beth and me, we never saw ourselves as experts. You know, we went out to sort of explore. And so, you know, we have led meditations and we've enjoyed that. Um, So we'll see. We'll see what happens next. We're open. One of the last things that I
0: wrote about notes that I took from the book, you wrote, meditation shines a light on fears and allows us to sit with them, fear of memories, fear of who we are, who we might become, of being well, of losing crutches, of sitting with the self, fear of the mystery, of our own darkness, of what we put down in our own basements, attics, of lurking thoughts and repressed memories, fear that somehow if we go there, we might fall apart, that we might unravel that we might turn into someone else, fear of who that person is might be, fear of change, because there is a huge safety in not changing, even if we feel terrible. And it seems to me that you took that most frightful part of your experience and turned it into the most powerful and the most generous. I really want to thank you for sharing that with us.
2: Oh, thank you, Debbie.
0: I have one last funny question for you. Sure. You have an amazingly eclectic extended family. Your brother-in-law, Chris Anderson, is the curator of TED. Your sister-in-law, Jacqueline, is the founder of the nonprofit Acumen, which utilizes innovation to try to end poverty. Your other in-laws are Robert and Courtney Novograd's designers who've had their own shows on Bravo and HGTV, where their seven kids have also been featured. So this is my question. Mm. What are your family get-togethers like?
2: They're amazing. <laughs> you know, just to give you a clue, like Beth, not this year, but a few years back, she was like, I think my, my New Year's resolution is to spend less time with family. <laughs> we we, you know, we spend a lot of time with each other. We like each other. It doesn't mean that there isn't family dysfunction because all families have that. But there's a lot of love. And we show up. We show up for each other in life. It's been such a, an amazing gift for all of us. And the next generation. Thank you, Suki. Suki Novogratz's book, which he
0: wrote with her sister in law, Elizabeth Novogratz, is called Just Sit, a meditation guidebook for people who know they should, but don't. Thank you, Suki, for being on the show today, and thank you for doing everything that you do to make the world a better place.
2: Thank you, Debbie.
0: This is the 14th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to DebbieMillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our new Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash Debbie-Millman. That's d.rip slash Debbie-Millman. If you want others to know about this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded live at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Wix.com.